Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Ozband, our daf of the day, Masachet Kitubot, daf nun tet, page fifty nine. Um, okay, our daf it's it's an interesting. The Ahmed Aleph is kind of long and Ahmed is kind of short. Um, Ahmed Aleph continues the discussion that was in the Mishnah on the previous daf on two daf ago, where we have this machloket, um, where and the psak here is according to Rabbi Yochanan Sandlar. Amr Shmuel Halachik Rabbi Yochanan meaning that's that's the bottom line. That's what I want to talk about today. Where the the what was his position? He said that a husband cannot consecrate his wife's earnings, meaning masiyadah, meaning even if um, you know whether or not it's what's coming to her anyway, or there's going to be the motor, the extra that is not necessary to sustain the household. It doesn't matter because Rabbi Yochanan Sandlar's point is these things, the Masiyadeh, don't exist yet. So you can't consecrate them. The husband cannot consecrate them in advance because they're not, like, they just don't exist. So there's nothing, it won't work. It doesn't take hold. So then the Gemara wants to know, did Shmuel really say this, that the halacha is like Rabbi Yochanan Sandlar? Vatnan kunam shen so, you know, the question about whether Shmuel says this, the Gemara wants to support that as a question by bringing a citation from a Mishnah in the Durham, where a woman says, where the Mishnah says that what, you know, in the cases that a woman would say, um, what I make to feed you, meaning what I do before you, anything I do to earn, that is anything is like it's going to be a vow that is going to be forbidden, like an offering. Meaning off limits, like an offering, I should say, not forbidden. Like, um, it's not like kashrut. It's like once you've taken an oath about something, then you can't use it for the regular uses anymore. And in the case where the husband does not nullify that vow, right? So then, what's going to be the case? Does is you know is the yeah actually going to come to him or no? But so the thing is that because she already has it. In place, meaning in the case of marriage, there's a requirement that Masayadeh are going to come to him. So then the Konam is not going to take this this um, designation that's going to, you know, take the same products out of the running of regular use. Um, it, it's not going to work. It can't. It won't take effect because again, it's not even hers to make that vow about because it already goes to him. Rabbi Kiva Omer, you're fair. Rabbi Kiva says no. The husband should nullify that vow. Why? What if she actually does make or produce right more than he's entitled to, and then those things would be, you know, designated off limits as the motar that we saw in our case. So Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri has a reason, a different reason that the husband should nullify that vow. Namely, what if they get divorced, and then because she has said that her earnings are prohibited meaning off-limits, because they're designated for another purpose, they're designated as off-limits to the husband, then she would be, this is really like a lot of, you need a lot of thumbs, she would be prohibited from marrying this same husband again after the divorce, because he would still again, still and forever, I suppose, be prohibited from the wife's earnings. So, Reb, you, um, who is this, Reb Yochanan Ben-Nuri, is concerned that the her oath in this case might last even pass through divorce if they would want to get married again. 
it's not the most common circumstance. And here's Shmuel, right? This is this is the question that the Gemara was asking. Here, meaning regarding the Darim, the case there, Shmuel says that the Allah is according to Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, meaning Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri is the one who says that a wife can, in fact, prohibit her future earnings from her husband, even though they, you know, even though these things don't yet exist. They are device leolam. They have not yet come into being, and then the prohibition would go into effect, you know, whenever, whenever those items come into effect. And the implication then is that if Shmuel is saying that the halacha is like Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, where he said that, in fact, the woman could swear off things that have not yet come into existence, then you would think that that contradicts the position of Rabbi Yochanan Asanlar, where Rabbi Yochanan Asanlar said, you can't consecrate things that don't yet exist. So the Gemara here tries to answer this, Ki Amr Shmuel halachik Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri la'adafa. Because the Gemara says that when he said this, when Shmuel said that the halacha was like Rabbi Yochanan ben Nuri, he was only talking about any extra, not the regular ma'asayadeh, but any ma'asayadeh that are, are that goes beyond what she normally would make, but that would be for the matter of sustaining the household and so on. And frankly, I think that this is still, it's still an open question, right? Because if the issue is that you can't consecrate something that doesn't yet exist, then what difference does it make whether it's the ha'adafa, whether it's the extra that she has made or not? And so the Gemara says... Then why didn't Shmuel say the halacha is like Rabbi Yochanan Minuri when it comes to this extra inami, or alternatively, ain halacha ketanakama, or let him say the halacha is not like the Tanakama, who said explicitly that you could not do that inami halacha Rabbi Akiva, or say explicitly that the halacha is like Rabbi Akiva, where Rabbi Akiva was indeed concerned about that extra. Meaning, if the whole point is that Rabbi Yochanan Minuri is paskening the final word, and that's what Shmuel wants to support, then why is it that Shmuel himself is not more precise in clean, you know, in, in poskening what he wants to posken? So the Gemara is going to give us a different view. Ella Amar Rav Yosef, Konamot Ka'amart. He says, Rav Yosef says, you're talking about Konamot, meaning this kind of designation that something is off limits. You know, does this Konam prove the idea that you cannot consecrate something that hasn't yet come into existence. That I think is a, you know, it's a fair question. To what extent are these cases parallel to begin with? Shani konamot. So the claim here is that konamot are different. They have a special status. Because a person can, you know, just designate somebody else's produce against himself. He can make, he can prohibit himself from that person's produce. Adam magdishta Meaning that's not talking about consecration. You're talking about when you say that something is a konam, right? You're saying you're you're forswearing it for yourself, let's say, and then that prohibition is only going to ha- kick in if there would ever be such a thing. Meaning that konam itself does enable this kind of designation that has not yet come into the world because it's a very strange thing. I don't want to say it's a strange thing to do to begin with, but the formulation of it to begin with is unusual. So when Shmuel says that Rabbi Yochanan Benuri was correct with regard to Konam, it's not really the same case as Masayadea of the wife's earnings. And that, I think, is, uh, you know, that is Rabbi Yosef's solution here, to say that the two cases, the Gemara brings a case from the Durham to to try to raise a question on why Shmuel 
would paskin like Rabbi Yochanan Sanlar when he's already paskin against Rabbi Yochanan Sanlar? And the Gemara's answer in the name of Rabbi Yosef is, yeah, but they're different cases, so Shmuel's fine. The Gemara goes on here. It's not done, but I think that that, that it wraps it up at least at least at this point before we get more wrinkles. You know, this is, um, at least we have a, a package of this. Yeah, look, I think what this stuff goes through is that language is important. And sometimes people say things and it may not be their intention, or sometimes they say things and it traps them into a situation that maybe they didn't attend. And that's what they're trying to figure out. And I think it's also acknowledging in a way that some of this, like, I don't know that I would call it verbal sparring, but sort of like people say things within the relationship of husband and wife that, and again, I think this underscores that it was a very, marriage was very economic that impacts the economics of marriage in the times of the Mishnah and the Gemara. Um, that's interesting. I want to think about that further. I do think that is an interesting lineup, like the the way they approach it. Right, because like we don't think about, like, yes, I think when people get married today, we think about who, first of all, most, many, many marriages today are dual income. And I don't think we get into the nitty gritty of like, I was supposed to provide you this and these earnings were this and that you can't have part of like, it's like, I don't know. I was so struck by in the page. It's like, it's a negotiation that's taking place. I think that's fair. Meaning I think it's fair to recognize that that's what's going on here. I think it's a little bit, um, maybe I'll come back to what you've been saying, you know, over the past several days, the idea that this is something that is being worked out. And so on the one hand, they're standardizing things. You know, this this in exchange for that, it's a given. And on the other hand, each ketubah, let's say, or each kind of, ne- each pairing, each negotiation process is exactly that. Um, right, well, each contract ultimately ends up being specific to that, to that couple. So I think that's kind of the tension that's here, right? Like on the one hand, you want to create standards, but I think the halafa very much recognizes, but each case is going to be individual and idiosyncratic. Yeah, I think that's fair. All right, I'm going to move on now. So we have a great Mishnah here, right? We had the Mishnah before about what he has to provide. And now we get to what the woman has to provide. So these are the, the literally the labor that a woman has to do for her husband. She has to grind, you know, wheat into flour. She bakes. She washes clothes. She cooks. She has to nurse her child. She makes her husband's bed, and she makes wool uh, from spinning. If she comes with one uh, maidservant, in other words, she brings it to the marriage, then these are like the first, you know, sort of this more manual labor, let's say, of, uh, of grinding the wheat, of baking, of washing. She doesn't have to do. And if it's two, she doesn't cook. And interestingly, and again, this is because, you know, I, some of you may know this, not know this, I'm actually a lactation consultant. So history of nursing is very interesting to me. She, that person would serve as a wet nurse and she wouldn't have to nurse her child. And if she is three, she basically doesn't have to do anything. Right. And if she has four, she sits in a chair, meaning she's like a queen and she literally doesn't have to do anything, right? Everybody around her is doing all the work. Now, I don't completely understand the difference between three and four because by the time you get to three, 
it's eliminated everything. But I think the idea of four is she even has an excess of health. She literally wouldn't have to lift her finger to do anything. Rabbi Eliezer even if she brings a hundred, he can make her made thread from wool. Because idleness leads to, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, bad sexual behavior. So the idea is, is like, it's good to have a job, right? We know sitting around and doing nothing isn't good. So you want her to do something with the running of the household. Let's say somebody even says, days of vows, that his wife is prohibited from doing any work. Then he actually has to divorce her. Because idleness leads to like stupidity, like so. I think what what Chazal is basically saying here is it's not ideal for her not to contribute. And what's interesting is the husband doesn't have the same clause for this, right? What he has to provide, he has to provide. Now again, it's more economic work, right? But he's not allowed to offload any of it. Okay, it is different. This is more the day to day running of a household. I, I don't personally think. I think one reading of this could be, you know, it's very anti feminist that. They want to keep women working. I think it's more making just an observation. It doesn't say anything specific to women that not having anything to fill your time with is not a good thing. And therefore, even if a husband prohibits her from doing work, that's not a marriage. You can't stay married and she's entitled to her ketubah. So uh, first the Gemara talks about tochenet, right? Really, are you going to grind wheat into flour? Because actually you need a millstone to do that. So they say, no, it's more the supervising or used to hand mill. Fine. But then they get into this. Uh, first, they bring a brisa, a mishnah of Rabbi Chia. Matninan, sorry, Matninan delok Rabbi Chia. Right? They say that this mishnah can't be like Rabbi Chia. Detani Rabbi Chia, because here they quote a brisa of Rabbi Chia. Einaisha elaliofi. A wife is only for beauty. Einaisha elalibanim. A wife is only for children. In other words, according to Rabbi Chia, the wife is not there to do household tasks. Ashley, she's there. For beauty, and I think we could spend a lot of time thinking about what does he mean by that? You know, is she just an object, or is this sort of a reverential approach to marriage? I think you could make an argument one side or the other side exactly what this means. Vitani Rabbi Chia, and we have another teaching of Rabbi Chia, Isha. A wife is only for wearing woman's finery. Again, we can make an argument is this out of respect for women, or does this sort of put women down in a way? Right, someone who wishes to beautify his wife, right? Should clothe her in linen garments. Somebody wants to whiten his daughter. Now, again, this is terrible, terrible, because uh, we know in today's world there's people who still do this. Um, so, yeah, this is not PC in any way, shape, or form. Right, he should feed her young, you know, young chickens, and give her milk to drink, uh, at the time of her maturity. So, another something you would do while she's going through puberty, and the idea is it would lighten its skin. I have nothing good, I can't justify this. And then they get into a very interesting machlokas, which will continue on to the next page. I mean, wait, 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 your yeah, data. Sir. I would say, I would say, um, it's as justifiable as any other quote-unquote beauty treatment that we do accept, right? Meaning the social mores that make this taboo are are good, right? Meaning there's good reason for that. But the phenomenon of it at the time was, you know, simply beautification. 
So whatever makeup treatments or I don't even know, right? I feel like there's plenty that people are still doing, even if it's not, you know, whitening per se. Right. So tomorrow, I th- you know, I was debating if I should read this ending Machlokas. I think I may save it for tomorrow. Uh, but tomorrow there's going to be a lot of information about nursing, which I'm, I'm going to go through. Um, but there's at least an initial Machlokas. I guess I'll just get to that piece. I, I don't need to read inside. It's pretty straightforward between Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel, which is essentially can the husband compel her to nurse her husband, right? Beit Shammai says, let's say a woman takes a vow which says she's not going to nurse her child, right? So Beit Shammai says, literally, right? Shometet dad mipiv. She removes the nipple from his mouth, right? Like he can have no contact. He absolutely cannot nurse. That baby cannot nurse. Beit Hillel says, no, the husband can actually compel her right? Um, and she has to nurse, even if it's against her will. But if she gets divorced, she doesn't owe the husband anything. And so I think what's interesting here is that it brings up some questions about nursing, like who is the nursing for? Like, is it a mother's obligation to the baby? Here, based on this machlokas, it seems it's a service that the woman provides to feed the husband's children. And so therefore, if she's divorced, according to Beit Hillel, he can't compel her. Not only that, and then they get into this thing if the baby recognizes her, we'll talk about this, I'll say for tomorrow more, right? He has to pay her a salary as a wet nurse and then compel her to do it because it does, you know, right? It recognizes that uh, there's a danger to the baby to not nurse. Again, this is well before the days of formula or alternate nutrition, which we are very lucky to have today. Nursing was basically your only option then. So, you would have to, you know, the mother would have to nurse her. You would have to find, uh, you would basically have to find a, a wet nurse. So we're going to now start a few dapping that are an inter- very interesting discussion about what the woman actually has to bring to the marriage. But again, keep in mind, according to the mission, she can really offload a lot of it if she comes into a marriage with a number of, of servants. And again, this makes sense if the framing of marriage here is basically economic. When you bring those servants into the household, you're bringing something tremendous to the household itself. And so, you know, the household has to run, but if you can economically provide for it in a different way, that becomes acceptable. I think I often think of, you know, Talmudic times, like the, like the Talmudic village in Katsurin, when we have our, you know, field trip to Israel for a talking Talmud, right? Like the, I think of it as like, everybody's living in huts and it, it was kind of small, small town. But that's not necessarily true, right? There were also people who were quite lo- wealthy who lived in quite well-established homes with servants in it. And, and what it meant to establish a home, the, the job there of establishing the home was perhaps something quite different than, like I say, my, my kind of default imagination. Um, and I think it's going to be very interesting to see where this goes. Yeah, I also would say, look, we live a very automated life. Like you have a dishwasher, you have a washing machine. It took... Running a household, I mean, I'm still overwhelmed with running a household, but running a household just took time. It just took a lot of time to do these things because you physically had to do them all. I mean, we live in a world where we don't physically have to do a lot of things, and I still find it burdensome. So I can only imagine what it was like when you actually had to do the work itself. And, you know, I don't know. I find getting the laundry into the washing machine to be an effort. (laughs) I'm going to call you on this, Yordana, because I know how much you do, both in terms of job and home and chesed and teaching okay, and more. Right, so, right. 
Yeah, but you so know what it, I mean. You know what I mean. I understand how it could be overwhelming, but like if all you had to do was switch the laundry, you'd be okay. That's for sure true. But my point is that this stuff took a lot more time to do in you know in this day and age. Absolutely. So having, having a servant was a great thing. Uh, well, that's our top discussion for the day. Rank us reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hydra website. Let us know what you thought about this stuff on our Talking Tom and Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.